Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, welcome to episode 51. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to thank you all so much for your support for our 50th episode. I received some beautiful heartfelt messages from you, our listeners, and it was a great reminder of why I'm so passionate about having these conversations on aid, development, social impact, and doing good. I'm really excited to be holding some live podcast recordings in Sydney and hopefully some other capital cities in the coming months. So stay tuned on our social media pages for updates on those events. Today's guest is Sally Hetherington. Sally and I connected a little while ago on LinkedIn after she released her book, It's Not About Me, which is a powerful narrative about Sally's experience working in development in Cambodia and why unskilled volunteering can do more harm than good. Volunteering is a contentious topic. Skilled long-term volunteering is vastly different to short-term unskilled volunteering, which we discuss in this episode. I loved chatting to Sally about her experience in Cambodia. She's an incredibly passionate, eloquent, and empathetic leader in the sector, and I hope you enjoy hearing her insights as much as I did. Today on the show, I have Sally Hetherington. Sally was just 25 when she packed up her belongings and bought a one-way ticket to Siem Reap in Cambodia. Originally running a foreign volunteer program, Sally realised she'd been falsely sold the message that sustainable development couldn't occur without ongoing support from international volunteers. Sally spent the next four years building up a community centre, Human and Hope Association, with a team of local staff. She successfully made herself redundant in 2016 and the organisation is now entirely locally led and run. Sally's manifesto, It's Not About Me, was published by Elephant House Press in 2019 and Sally very kindly shared a copy with me, which is why she's on the show. Uh, It was such a wonderful book and I'm really excited to discuss it. Sally, thank you so much for being here. You've... um, done a bit of a 180 with your development journey and and your book is essentially about how you thought one thing about development and learn another which seems to be the case for so many of us in this sector um so let's mm. let's go back to that first trip to Cambodia you were 25 what led you to to book that one-way ticket so I would like to take you back two years before that because that was actually my first trip to Cambodia on a holiday and I'd uh I'd picked Cambodia because I saw these amazing photos and I thought, oh, this will be really good for Facebook because, you know, Instagram wasn't around there. So I went on a trip with my aunt, uncle and mum and I went there not knowing that Cambodia actually had this horrible recent history of genocide. And it was when I was there and I was visiting the places that most tourists visit, the uh, genocide museum, the killing fields, I was just struck by this feeling of how could a country recover from that? How could a country recover when a quarter of their population has been slaughtered? How can they recover when it was the 
dedicated people that died and they just have to rebuild from scratch whilst also still fighting the civil war. And that really made me want to come back and help. And so when I got back to Australia, I thought, you know what, I'm going to go volunteer in Cambodia because that's the best way that I can help people. So I organised to spend a month in a residential centre for former street children and I don't really remember what I did. I remember I got a lot of great photos with adorable children. I think I did some teaching, some dancing, but it left an impact on me that Firstly, I really wanted to continue to help Cambodia because it then had a special place in my heart. But also I thought the best way for me to help long term is to be a volunteer coordinator and, you know, help manage those foreign volunteers that come but in the truckloads to Cambodia. So that's what then led me back there in 2011 at the age of 25 was to work as a volunteer coordinator at a school for disadvantaged children. Okay, Interesting. So like so many volunteers, clearly your heart was in the right place and you had really Mm -hmm. good intentions in going over there. Mm -hmm. So how soon after arriving in Cambodia um, on that trip did you realise that things weren't as they seemed? It was gradual. At first, I was so excited. I thought, what a great impact I'm making. And as you said, um, I had good intentions. The people who go there and want to help have good intentions. But I soon realised that good intentions aren't actually good enough and that we need to be researching the effects of our volunteering before we go over and is it actually effective. Because what I saw was children with attachment issues, because with working with vulnerable children who come from unstable backgrounds, who are experiencing poverty and violence and disease, yet we have this revolving door of foreign volunteers coming through for a week, for a month, and that actually creates more issues with with these children. And I saw the local staff were becoming disempowered because they were more than capable of doing their jobs. But again, we had foreign volunteers coming in and running classes or uh, being their assistant. It was a mix and a match. And they, what I saw was them thinking, but aren't we capable? We're getting paid. Why aren't we able to run these programs for ourselves? And I also saw that a lot of the time, tasks that were being done were stuff that could go to local employees, such as running farms and painting murals. It was all stuff that locals could do, yet foreigners think that that's the best way to help in those countries and just wasn't contributing to the long-term sustainability of the organisation. Okay, so you've raised two really interesting points there around the harmful side of volunteering. The first one Mm -hmm. being um, the inconsistency that it creates for Mm -hmm. the host communities and specifically the beneficiaries, which in your case were children. And then secondly, Mm -hmm. um, the fact that it can prevent uh, locals from having employment um, and from skills development um, in favour of short-term foreign Um, people in those roles so if we take the former point to begin with why Mm -hmm. was that so detrimental like can you go into more detail on the effect that um, this volunteering culture had on the children that you were working with oh so for example there was this one student that she was about 14 when I first met her and she would become really attached to her classroom volunteer who would generally come for one month and so she'd latch onto that volunteer, the volunteer would stay for one month, and then as the volunteer would leave, that student would become depressed 
every single month and should stay that way for a week, a week and a half, then she'd latch on to the next volunteer and it would continue to go on. And she was actually married by the time she was 15. And, you know, I have no proof of this, but I really believe that she needed this consistency in her life because she had such a troubled home life. And that's why she came to the school was for this consistency, but they weren't able to provide that for her. What she really needed was a Cambodian teacher who was there for the long term, who could work with her on her issues and just be with her, you know? Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's really heartbreaking to hear that. Um, it is. And then and then on the point of the local livelihoods, um, mm-hmm. we'll get into the solution that you created shortly, but I'm just keen to make mm-hmm. sure we understand the nature of the problem first. So in terms of local livelihoods, um, how did that play out? How were local people crowded out of jobs? So some people still had their jobs, um, but they were overtaken. So imagine me coming and saying, Rachel, I will do your job for you, even though I don't know anything about the context of your job. I don't know anything about the culture of your job. I don't have experience in that job. Yet I believe that I can do a better job than you. It would not make you feel very good. And that's what I saw was the disempowered staff and them thinking, questioning their ability actually, can I really do this? And so what I really realised was that for change to be permanent, it needs to come from the local community because they are the subject matter experts, they know the community and the culture well, and they are there for the long term. I once spoke to somebody who went to a project his um, company sponsored, and it was in Cambodia, and they were witnessing some foreign volunteers painting a school. And then there was a Cambodian painter nearby, and he said to him, that could have been my job, but they didn't give it to me. They gave it to those foreign volunteers who were willing to pay for it. And there's this whole thing, like when people go and build houses in Cambodia, at first glance, sure, that seems amazing, but a lot of them are unskilled. But also, there are over half a million Cambodians who are living and working Thailand as builders because they can't get the jobs in country. And that's tearing families apart. We have to think of it as um, looking at the local economy, looking at the families, looking at the individuals and thinking, we can do better we can help them to keep their jobs but just help in a more effective way other than volunteering. That's an amazing statistic. Half a million Mm -hmm. builders. Mm -hmm. Wow. My gosh. Wow, that really drives it home, doesn't it? That it just seems Mm. so ironic for a for an Australian builder to go over to Cambodia for two weeks when when there's Mm -hmm. half a million builders there. And I'll tell you, it's mostly not Australian builders going over, it's school kids. The school kids and the university kids are targeted by volunteerism companies because it does look good on their resume and it does make them feel good and it does make these volunteers develop in themselves. But it's not about us and that's why my book is called It's Not About Me. We need to make sure that we are helping the people overseas in the best way that's effective for them not for what makes us feel good, as hard as that is. Yeah. It's funny hearing you say that about how university students are targeted. I remember years ago now at university, before every lecture, there was always a talk about the latest volunteering opportunity, whether it was mm-hmm. um, turtle conservation in somewhere in South America or, or indeed building schools and homes in parts of Asia. Mm-hmm. It definitely was something that appealed to university students because it was designed for them. It was short term, it was cheap um, 
And as you said, it makes you feel good and it looks good on a resume. So I can I can understand how it would be really problematic for people to kind of understand, no, in fact, you might be doing more mm. harm than good. Exactly. And that's why I'm not here to get angry at people or anything. I'm here to try and educate them. Let's start that narrative and let's realise that people in countries like Cambodia and Zimbabwe, they know what's best for their community because they live there. You know, so let's be supporting them and supporting their local staff to do an amazing job that will create change for generations to come. Yeah, of course. Now let's talk about what you did in Cambodia. Upon mm-hmm. having this realisation, you then started Human and Hope Association. That is that correct? Uh, almost correct. So what happened was I was my values were really changing and I'm like, what can I do? What can I do? And the way that I saw it, I had two options. And one was to stay with that organisation and make changes from within. And the second was to go back to Australia with my towel between my legs. But with that organisation, they had reduced their minimum volunteering period from one month to one week because you'd get actually a lot more funds from volunteers if you reduce it to one week. And even today, they still have a, um, a volunteer program. And if I'd come back to Australia, I would have left the country with a more negative footprint. And I'm like, no, I can't do that to them. That's not what my values are about. But fortunately, one of my Cambodian friends introduced me to Human and Hope Association. So that was a nightly English school. It wasn't registered. And it was run at a local Buddhist pagoda by Cambodian volunteers and some foreign volunteers. So they taught English and Buddhist morality for two hours an evening. And it was when I was introduced to them, I thought, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. It's Cambodians coming up with solutions to their community problems. This can be a long-term solution. So I got together with the local team and we spoke about it and we agreed that I would start working with them and develop it with them into a reputable NGO that was addressing the root causes of poverty. But there were two conditions and that was number one, that we would stop the foreign volunteer program and number two, that I would eventually make myself redundant and HHA Cambodia would then be entirely locally run and driven. That's an amazing goal to set from the outset. Like, how do you think you knew at the very start that you would be able to make yourself redundant? It was because of my lived experience for that past year and a bit at the other organisation. I'd seen, um, I'd learnt from mistakes that I'd seen and that I had made. And I had really realised that, Sally, you took over things too much when you were in your position as volunteer coordinator. You need to be able to step back, uh, let other people make their own mistakes and provide a really empowering environment. So I think that's why we've been so successful in achieving that goal, because from the outset, it's like, this is the goal and we have to work together to achieve this. So I think that was one of the hardest things for me in developing Human and Hope was being able to step back and not be in control, which, you know, we just want to get things done and done quickly, but you have to be respectful of the culture, which means that things get done more slowly there. People take time to learn and to understand, but in the end, it will either work out or it won't, but that's just a fact of life and that's all part of the journey. Yeah, I love that. I totally agree with that sentiment. I think that most of us that work in this sector would agree 
um, that fostering local leadership is far more important mm-hmm. than putting ourselves at the forefront of a project. Um, I think that's exactly. a sentiment, at least in my view, it's a sentiment that would be widely shared across the sector. But I think how that actually manifests practically um, mm. is a whole different thing. So I'm, I'm interested how, like, you know, day to day, week to week, what did you actually mm. do to put local leadership and local ideas ahead of your own vision? Mm, so that was a real learning curve because sometimes I put my own thoughts and my own wants ahead of others. Um, so what happened was it was originally teaching English and Buddhist morality, but we agreed that, hey, we need to take whole families out of poverty. The onus shouldn't just be on a child because if we want um, children to learn, we need to help their parents earn an income so they don't make that child go out and work. So we got together, um, putting together programs, but originally it was me saying, I think this is the best thing. Without even doing any design thinking, I was learning as I went, so I did make a lot of mistakes that fortunately we learned from and we were able to rectify. But big one was one day I was just so fed up of receiving resumes from people um, and they were really poorly written. They didn't do them any justice. And I said to my team, okay, what we have to do is run a job skills workshop where we teach about resume writing skills and job interview skills, and this will help the community. Again, I was thinking that would um, lower my frustrations. So the team went about putting together the workshop and advertising it. But nobody from our community showed up. The only people that showed up were the staff members' university friends who weren't our target market. And it was just because I had been trying to solve my problem. I hadn't put myself in the shoes of the community members who were farmers and builders and seamstresses and didn't need this particular knowledge. So that was a real um, learning curve for me to say stop putting yourself before the others and then it became a much more collaborative approach with the team and to get the team developed um, to begin with before we ended the foreign volunteer program we then did have some volunteers come in to pass on skills such as uh, teaching young children and human resources etc but that was because we didn't actually have funding to pay local training organizations But once we did secure that funding, we had university scholarships from the staff to learn from other Cambodians. And we had Cambodian volunteers come in and run workshops. And I was running workshops, but that was eventually completely passed over to the local staff who could then go out, learn something in a workshop or in training that we paid for, and then pass that knowledge on to the other staff. So that way, no knowledge has been lost because we have such a clear succession plan in place. And that's what I find happens with when volunteers volunteers go over to countries like Cambodia, um, some of them are very focused on skill building, which is great, but does that organisation have succession planning in place? Will anything actually happen once you've left? There's a lot that goes into it. You need to have a really clear model of succession planning for that to actually work. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I really love the example you shared before about the resumes. Um, mm. I see a lot of myself in that example because <laughs> I think I think it's a really good point that you know we have a very efficient style of working, mm-hmm. I think, and we're very focused on speed um, a lot of the time. In uh, at least you know I'm in the corporate sector now, and there's definitely a mm. focus on speed and efficiency. And I know that when I'm working in context overseas 
things just aren't going to go at that pace and that doesn't that doesn't make them wrong um but it is you know you have to adapt to the different working styles of different cultures and Mm. it begs the question how could a volunteer who's never visited a country before and is only spending a week there possibly understand how nuanced the working style of a particular culture is exactly they they can't right (laughs) no and just because they for example, a volunteer might have successfully done something in Papua New Guinea, but that won't translate to being successful in Uganda because every single culture is different. And people often ask me, Sally, would you replicate this model in another country? And I say that's a completely different culture, different people. Every single community in Cambodia is different because they all have their own different values. It's just the same with different suburbs in Sydney. We all are a bit different and we can't apply a one-size-fits-all approach to development. And that's why you really need to be somewhere long-term and that's why local people are the subject matter experts and the best place to do this. Yeah, and I and I guess that touches on this broader discussion that, that the development sector has on the issue of re- replicating development interventions and Mm. is it ever appropriate to replicate a project that you did in Vietnam in Samoa Mm. um, Mm. you know or somewhere else and it it really raises the importance of taking a very anthropological approach to your work and really taking the time and investing the time um, to get to know the complexities of a local culture and Mm -hmm. I imagine and I I imagine you agree that that's just not something that can be done in a short-term volunteering stint exactly exactly the only short-term volunteering that I advocate for is well I don't really advocate for it but I say this isn't a problem is if you are in emergency aid that could be helpful but again you need to make sure that you're actually experiencing that and that you're more of a help than a hindrance because emergency aid also has a lot of problems associated with it where volunteers rush to the country obviously wanting to help but then they can actually cause more problems but when it comes to coming and teaching and building houses and people come and build wells no we really need to change that narrative and we need to stop putting ourselves first and putting ourselves on pedestal because there's automatically this power imbalance we don't mean for that to be there but it is there and we need to really acknowledge that yeah yeah great point so let's go back to human and hope association so Mm -hmm. what milestones occurred on the lead up to you realizing that you could make yourself redundant like how did you know that it was time Oh, so uh, it went for a few years and we eventually moved out of that pagoda because there were issues and we built our own community centre and that was one of the proudest parts of my life was because suddenly one day I realised, well, we've got to leave. There were a lot of issues there and within less than six months we had raised the money to rent land and we had built our own school on our land and that was it was just such a big turnaround for us and then that really secured our future and then it was uh, a few months a couple of months before I was scheduled to leave because I'd said look this is my end day I can't put it off any longer otherwise we'll we'll lag behind and it came to a point where we had to let a teacher go she'd been on performance management and she just wasn't doing a good job but with the Cambodian culture uh it's not easy to let somebody go because these people don't want to lose face. And also this staff member was a really good friend of all of the staff. Uh, But at that moment, 
the staff members who were responsible for her performance management said, look, she's our friend. She's also been our teacher. She's also this staff member's partner. But we know that what's best for the organisation is for her to leave and for us to replace her so that that program can thrive. And it was just in that moment I said, you know, I could go today because you guys are amazing. You still hold your Cambodian values, but you are also enhancing your values so that you are putting the organisation first and not your friendships and your relationships. And that's how I know that HHA will survive because you really do care about the community and what's best for it. And, yeah, that was just such an amazing moment for me. Yeah, that's wow, that's great. I guess it's that moment when you see people able to put what's in the interests of the organisation ahead of what might be in their own personal interests or what might feel easiest. Exactly. Wow. Okay. So then you came back to Australia and you are now CEO of Human and Hope Association Australia. Mm -hmm. And so what does that involve? So what I do with Human and Hope Australia is primarily I fundraise for Human and Hope Cambodia so they can establish new programs and also expand their existing programs that are alleviating poverty. So that's education, vocational training, community support. But I would like to note that the team in Cambodia do also raise a substantial amount off their own money, which is an amazing achievement. But I also do advocacy here. So I go out to companies, to universities, to rotary clubs, and I talk to them about my personal journey. And we go through situations where people go and volunteer overseas and we discuss what are the potential pitfalls of those volunteering activities because it is a mission of mine and one of HHA's values is to reduce volunteerism because, like I said, good intentions aren't always good enough and we can actually be having such a negative impact on that community. I would like to give an example there. So back in the day, we were going to start a family farm program at Human and Hope and so that was teaching villagers chemical-free farming. But of course, first we had to do a trial. So uh, one of the team members, he went out to the community to try and recruit two families to be part of this trial. But every house he went to, they said, no, 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 no. And he thought, why not? Because we're helping you to grow food for your nutrition or you can earn an income from it. And finally, he found out that another organisation had come into the community and run a three-day training workshop on farming and given a bunch of resources and then left and they had never come back. So there was no follow-up and no support and every single one of those crops failed. And then the villagers were like, well, we've failed, we're never going to try this again. So that was a really good lesson for my team that you are literally playing with people's lives and if you don't get it right the first time, there's no second shot you know, you have to really be prepared and do your work and really have that strong relationship with the community for this change to be permanent. So that's um, just one story I wanted to tell off on a tangent. But again, it just highlights the message that short-termism doesn't work. We need long-term solutions. And that's what I advocate for in Australia. Great. I'm really keen to hear about that advocacy. But I want to pick up on a point you just made, though, that Mm -hmm. I think we often forget and it always is a bit disarming for me when I remember that we're talking about people's whole lives here we're not just talking about your overseas volunteering opportunity we're talking about people's ongoing well-being and livelihoods and purpose in life and that's never something to take lightly is it no it's not and it's worrying when you think about 
you know, I love high school students and I hope we have lots of <laughs> high school students listening to this show. Um, but yeah. it is worrying when you think about, you know, 14-year-olds with no experience in a cross-cultural context going over mm-hmm. to another country to volunteer and, you know, build a house for a week. And it's mm-hmm. sort of, do they understand the gravity of that? I don't think they do. Mm-hmm. No, and I would really love to have good discussions with schools to think, why, what do you think the benefit is for the people on the ground? What do you think the potential consequences are? And how can we make it, instead of a volunteering experience, a learning experience instead? So then the students will learn stuff, then they'll come back to Australia, they'll go to university, they'll get life experience, and then if the situation does arise where there is ethical long-term volunteering available for them, they are then properly prepared. But right now, age 14, Definitely get to know who you want to help and how the best way it is to help. But let's not just jump on a plane. And I think this is the generation that will be able to nail that. Like I'm constantly mm-hmm. impressed with the high school students of today. I think that their mm-hmm. their global consciousness is just amazing. And I'm so inspired by the advocacy around climate change that I see them doing. And I, you know, I think this is the generation that if you really educated them on the pitfalls of volunteering, I don't think they'd keep doing it. Exactly. And I find that when I go and speak to university students, it's just because I haven't thought of it from that perspective. But then once they have and once they've had that discussion, they're like, oh, I see that there's an issue now. And I see that I went overseas with my school, but we were allowed to go and play with children and pick up children with no protection in place. That actually wasn't the best thing to do. So I'm very excited with how... um, university students are taking this message and I've actually just started working with a university student for her to form a team so then they can go out to schools and try and spread this message because it's young people spreading the message to young people I'm not young anymore but it's just like you know in HHA (laughs) (laughs) not young enough but just like HHA in Cambodia it's the Cambodians helping the Cambodians and that's what we're doing here with trying to spread that message as well so it's more relatable Yeah, that's great. So on that point of advocating for a reduction in volunteerism, we've been talking Mm -hmm. more on this show lately about how NGOs can improve their government engagement and also improve their policy and advocacy function Mm -hmm. Um, because often NGOs nail the logistics um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, nail the program delivery, but can struggle a little bit on the government engagement and advocacy side of things, which is a sweeping generalisation. But let's talk about what does advocacy look like for for your organisation? For us, uh, first of all, there was my book being published uh, and soon the e-book book will be released on November 1st. So that makes it much more accessible for university students because it will only be $10. But then there's going out and speaking at universities and the challenge to overcome is getting universities to be willing to accept this message because a lot of universities still do offer these programs. But I will say that University of Technology Sydney have been amazing and so has Macquarie University Global Leadership Program because those are two places that really get it. And that's why they want me to come and speak about volunteerism. But I need to try and get into those other universities who are still saying, yes, go for a month and work with disabled children in Vietnam. We need to open up that conversation more. The Macquarie University Global Leadership Program is fantastic. I've had the privilege Mm -hmm. of doing a bit of work with them this year, and I know that they are really big on global placements. So when you say they've 
been you know really good about this does that mean that those global placements now don't ever involve volunteering they have an ethical volunteering guide and they're very against short-termism i can't comment on the global placements because i don't know enough about that but i'm very happy with how they don't want the short-term volunteering placements and they have all of these guidelines in place for their students for you should be ticking these boxes before you think of going and volunteering overseas. So that's a good step in the right directions. We'll never, as optimistic as I'd like to be, we'll never stop the short-term volunteering across the world, but I'll be happy if we can take steps to try and reduce the negative impact. So let's talk about some ways that people can help. Um, mm-hmm. So we can uh, finish this discussion with some uh, some practical advice. So first of all, I think when we say short-term volunteering isn't such a good idea, um, long-term, like two-year placements with Australian mm-hmm. Volunteers International, uh, what are your thoughts on those? Uh, I've seen some of them have been not so effective uh, and some can definitely be effective. What I've seen in some situations is that there was no succession planning. My thought is if somebody's going over there as a consultant uh, for fundraising or something for two years, they should then be training a local staff member and, again, have that succession planning in place within that organisation so that that knowledge isn't just with that one staff member because there should be no need for another fundraising consultant to come in the next time and then over and over again. But that's what I have seen in some organisations. But what I suggest people ask themselves before they go and volunteer long-term is firstly, what are your motivations to volunteer? So are you volunteering so you can live abroad for a while or because you think the experience would look good on your resume or you want to play with some really adorable children? Or do you honestly believe that you have a specific set of skills that an organisation genuinely needs in order to develop? And then another question would be, can a local staff member gain the knowledge they need to fulfil their role in their location? Because what at Human and Hope, we are all about supporting the local economy. And that's why we pay for organisations, um, for the staff members to participate in workshops from local organisations and to attend the local universities. Because my eyes, I think that volunteering overseas should always involve passing on skills to the local staff. But if those local staff members can access um, that knowledge locally, support the local economy, fundraise for a scholarship or for some training fees. And then a third question would be, would I be working directly with the community? Which uh, I really don't think that you should be working directly with the community because it needs to be the local people front and centre. I always tried to stay in the background at HHA because I didn't want people to think that HHA existed because of me. I wanted them, to, the community to see you can develop from Cambodians. You don't need a foreigner to come in and do the work. It's the Cambodians who can actually own that. It's just because the local people have been sold the message in the past when they've seen organisations with lots of foreign volunteers coming in on an ongoing basis. So we need to just shift that narrative. So if you are volunteering long-term, you should be working directly with the staff. And then uh, a final question would be, 
again, I, I just keep saying this, but I'll say it once more, is there clear succession planning? You don't want to waste your time. You don't want to waste your money and you don't want to waste the organization's time. So you just want to make sure that they have a plan in place. So once you leave, that knowledge can still be there for years to come. Because when we did have those volunteers come in and offer their skills to the staff, all of that knowledge is actually still being used today and is still there today, which is what, five years later, because of clear succession planning. And that's when you know that you would have a successful volunteer placement. Oh, and one more is, of course, to do your due diligence on any organisation to make sure that they are legitimate as well. I think that's fantastic practical advice. Um, Mm. I'm really excited at people listening to this episode as they're considering volunteering and, and hearing that advice. I think it's awesome. I think it's also really worth calling out and congratulating you on, on the fact that it, the, the qualities that you've talked about there, an ability to step back, to not be front and center, to not be in control, to build local ownership, to really undermine your own ego in favor <laughs> of, of putting other people at the forefront. They aren't just fantastic professional qualities, they're fantastic personal qualities. And I think it's Aww. a testament to you that you've clearly really nailed those. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. Sometimes I feel like, oh, I'm not successful. Fundraising is so hard. But then I have to think, well, look what this Cambodian community is achieving, you know. Absolutely. And I and I think it's, you know, it speaks to the fact that the more secure you are on your own values and the more mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, you understand the development sector and understand what it is that you stand for and what you're okay with and not okay with, then the better mm-hmm. you are when you are in those complex ethical situations overseas. Exactly. And I'm proud to say that HHA and myself, we never risked our integrity to, uh, to get money or to make a donor happy. We had to be uh, strong enough to say, no, we don't want your money because you can't come in and do this and you can't tell us what to do because you're not a staff member. You're not here on the ground every day. We did have to have those tough conversations and I still have to have those tough conversations and it does cost us money, but you know what? The community feel empowered and that's the best thing. And we've been, 19 families have been taken out of poverty so far. It is a long progress especially since most of the students we work with are children so we won't see that impact for long for a very long time but I'm really glad with the impact that they are having because it's the local staff doing it. Wow that's great okay so to close can you let our listeners know where they can find your book and give a plug for the book? (laughs) Fantastic. So you can find my book at itsnotaboutmebook.com. That's the paperback and it's a signed copy. Or you can find the ebook. It will be on Kindle and iBooks from the 1st of November. And all the proceeds are donated to Human and Hope Association Incorporated. So we can continue to support Human and Hope Cambodia to fulfill their mission and to alleviate poverty and just create sustainable futures. Wonderful. And as I said, I've read the book. It's brilliant. And I really encourage um, anyone listening to check it out. Sally, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been wonderful to chat with you. My absolute pleasure and happy 50th episode. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. What a conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. And as always, I'd love to hear your feedback via our social media channels, which you can access via at GoodwillPod. I'm off to PNG in a couple of days with the Lowy Institute to discuss all things relating to the Australia PNG relationship. 
In the next few days, I'll be releasing a special episode on the recent ACFID annual general meeting held in Sydney just over a week ago. So stay tuned for that as well. Chat to you soon.